Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week we have a great show for you. I'm bringing in Joe Muscolino, who's a well-known and well-traveled continuing education instructor. He's a doctor of chiropractic and has been in private practice since 1985. He has taught anatomy and physiology at the university level for five years, and he taught at a massage school for 24 years. He also does workshops all over the world. And he writes a regular feature article in Massage and Bodywork magazine, and has written many other articles for other magazines and trade journals across the field. He also has an extensive online video library and resource center catered towards massage therapists. Now, Joe does offer a lot of continuing education in orthopedic manual therapy, but for quite some time, I've been looking for a guest to dive deep into the subject of critical thinking and decision-making. Now, Joe was recommended to me as a brilliant critical thinker, someone who can distinguish and articulate how to figure something out, rather than just learn what techniques match up well to certain symptoms. And as you'll hear, for Joe, it comes down to understanding the anatomy. And from there, everything falls into place. So as you will hear, he is passionate about massage and bodywork, and he gets jazzed up about the learning process. In fact, if I could take away one message from what Joe has to say, it would be, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can learn. Now in retrospect, I can say this episode had quite a bit of anatomical language and some technical jargon that even if we were familiar with it, it still might be hard to keep pace with it. And Joe talks fast. So the fact that this is only an audio format, I can understand it might be difficult. So when it comes to the theoretical examples, you know, feel free to use the pause button, the skip back button. It allows you to re-listen and follow his train of thought. It also might be best done with an anatomy book in front of you. And upon re-listening, having that was definitely helpful for me. However, if that doesn't appeal to you, don't worry, since this is only a small piece of the episode, and you can just listen through and trust that his clinical reasoning was sound. Also, this conversation, we had a lot of content, so I decided to break it up into two episodes so that it wasn't too overwhelming. I find it useful to have information broken down into chunks, so if you're an individual that does not like to have to wait or until you see the conclusion of something, then I recommend you wait until the second episode is released to listen to the first one. And they should be about a week to 10 days apart, so you wouldn't have to wait too long. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Joe. It was certainly a ride. I give you Joe Muscolino. Okay, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be joining you with this podcast. Yeah, I've had a lot of guests on, and different guests have different things they bring to the table. And one of the things I'm really excited about is your analytical mind, because in the short conversation we've had prior to this phone call, that was the thing that really stood out to me. So I'm excited to to see that on display. Is there uh, a way you can give a little bit of a quick summary of your career path and what br- what brought you into bodywork? Sure. Um, you know. As a child, I always knew that I either wanted to be a chiropractor or an engineer. And I think it's perhaps because we have a limited uh, worldview. I had three uncles who were chiropractors, and my father was an engineer. And they both looked appealing to me. And um, I always said I would do one or the other. And it might have been by default. When I reached 10th grade and I, I did not like 
advanced algebra and trig math for the first time, I said, well, if I don't like math, I'm not going to be an engineer. So by default, I must be a chiropractor. Um, so I don't want to make it sound too much like I simply fell into it out of uh, a lack of an alternative. But um, I did see my uncles as chiropractors, and I saw how they, in the world of manual therapy, helped their patients. And that was always very exciting to me. And even though I say that um, I decided not to be an engineer, it was actually the mindset of an engineer, my father, that tempered me with how I became a manual therapist. So I'm probably now leading more into other things there. But to finish up the path, um, I finished high school. I got a four-year degree in biology, and I went straight into chiropractic school. And I went to Western States Chiropractic College. Now, nowadays, it's called Western States Chiropractic University out in Portland, Oregon. And uh, it was the most uh, what we call in the world of chiropractic mixer school that existed. It was a very wide scope of how we looked at things. Um, in the state of Oregon, chiropractors are licensed to do gynecology, obstetrics, proctology, minor surgery. Um, so a very wide scope. And that's Oregon's very unusual that way. But it was a school that really opened up my mind to being broad in my thinking as chiropractic schools might go. Uh, but being the son of an engineer, I always think about forces, force production. And from the day I was in chiropractic school to the day I graduated, to me, muscles seem to be more important than bones. Because if a chiropractor were to say to you, well, a bone is out of place, and let's say we assume that the chiropractor adjusts you and puts it back in place, well, then why would you ever need to go back to them if it's back in place? So there must be something more than that. Bones are passive elements. Muscles are active contractile tissue. And for that matter, fascia is passive tissue that can create passive forces. And now we know that even fascia can become contractile and have active contractile forces. So from the very beginning, myofascial tissue was more important to me than bones, joints, bones, in and out of place, aligned, misaligned. So from the very beginning, I've been a very soft tissue-oriented chiropractic physician. And so in your classes and in your work, one thing that really comes up frequently is the importance of critical thinking. Can you explain why that's such a focal point for your, for your practice? Yes. First, I want to preface that in the world of manual therapy where I teach, I teach orthopedic manual therapy or clinical orthopedic manual therapy. And um, the, the world of massage because that's mostly the world I'm known in, is still a little bit of a Wild West with regard to terms and terms being defined. So first, I would say that when I say clinical, what that means is that the client, or if we want to say patient, the client comes in with a specific condition that they want remedied. And when I say orthopedic, I'm thinking musculoskeletal or myofascial skeletal or neuromyofascial skeletal to distinguish it from internal visceral work. 
Um, so clinical orthopedic manual therapy to me is about a client who presents with a specific, and if I say musculoskeletal for now on, I am not lessening the importance of fascia or the nervous system. Otherwise, I'm forced to say neuromyofascial skeletal over and over. Right. So, let's, let's, for the sake of ease and comfort for both ourselves and the listeners, just subscribe that when you say that, you, you mean the whole spectrum. Yes, thank you. So I'm looking at people coming in with musculoskeletal conditions, and they want them remedied. Um, to do that, uh, we need to, and I'll preface that since it's orthopedic work, I'm not in any way lessening the importance of energy work or lymphatic drainage or, or touch in general. I really want to emphasize that that's simply a different a realm of manual therapy. I'm looking at musculoskeletal manual therapy to remedy a specific condition. Okay, so when a client comes in, it's very tempting for people to go to their textbook. And, I, and I'm mindful of the fact that I'm a textbook author. And when you write textbooks, you try to present things as clearly as you can, but people rarely present the exact way that a textbook will state that they will present. Um, so if you look up a pathology textbook and it says, well, if someone has this condition, they will have these specific symptoms. Well, they don't always present with all of those signs or symptoms. I should specify signs or objective. They can be verified by a third party, like how many degrees you can abduct your armature glenohumeral joint is a sign because that we can measure it. A symptom is subjective. A symptom is something that the client feels. You can never tell a client that they do or don't feel something. So if they feel pain, that's subjective. So we look at our signs and symptoms, and we try to say, well, what condition does this fit? Well, we have a number of problems here. The first problem is most likely that people rarely come in when they first have their first sign or symptom. Most of the time, if they can keep functioning in their life, they in some way try to ignore it being there, and they compensate around that injured structure. So maybe they have a tight muscle in, maybe they have restriction in the shoulder joint, since I mentioned that before. So they can't raise their arm up into the air as much. Well, they elevate their shoulder girdle instead, and therefore they move the stress in their body from the supraspinatus or deltoid over to levator scapulae or upper trapezius. And now they're overusing that muscle. Um, and then that muscle starts, that compensation mechanism starts to be stressed, or as Leon Chetow likes to say, used, overused, misused, abused. I love those four words in a row. And it becomes abused, stressed, overstressed, and injured, and aggravated, inflamed, tender, painful. So then they try to get around using that muscle. So maybe they don't use their upper trapezius anymore to maybe hold their neck in a bad posture. So they have to throw the stress onto splenius capitis or something, maybe even on the other side of the body more. But what happens is people will keep compensating around their original injury. And then they keep going until they 
until their compensation mechanisms fail. And that can be months, that can be years, that could be decades later. And now they have signs and symptoms around each condition of each structure that they try to compensate around. So we have to, and this is a really big word for me, mechanism. We have to look at the mechanism, the physical mechanism of the condition with which they're presenting, or more likely, the multiple conditions with which they're presenting. And we have to look at the neural mechanisms, the neural patterns of posture and movement. And to understand treatment, we need a target. And to understand the target, we need an assessment. And the assessment is a condition that has a mechanism. And we must treat the mechanism. We don't treat the sign or the symptom. So I'm getting very long-winded here and really going off here, but is this starting to approach an answer to your question? Yeah, yeah. I think that the, 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 the end there really tied it together for me in that the critical thinking is, and for lack of a, a better word, you already used it, but the, the critical thinking is our mechanism by which to understand the treatment protocols that are necessary because we can parse out what part is symptom, what part is the condition, all the things that are necessary in order to actually uh, come up with a viable treatment plan. Well, I like the way you put that. I'll say that there's mechanisms on both sides. We have to have a mechanism with how we approach our client to determine our assessment and treatment. There's a mechanism to their condition, and we must know what that is. Perhaps a better example is this. You might look in a book or a textbook, uh, an article, a magazine, um, and you might hear that someone has sciatica, and there's a certain treatment for sciatica. I would hear that statement and say, what? There's no such thing as a treatment for sciatica. Sciatica is a symptom. It means that the sciatic nerve is impinged, it's irritated, it's compressed, it's inflamed. The mechanism is what is compressing it. If they have a bulging disc at L4-5, the treatment for that is absolutely different than if they have a tight piriformis that is compressing the sciatic nerve. They both cause sciatica because it's irritation of the sciatic nerve. But what I would do for it would be totally different if I feel that there's a disc bulge versus a tight piriformis. Yeah, I think that you're, you're, you're actually also pointing on that critical thinking allows you to, to navigate the gray areas that exist in every person. Because we, you're saying we don't all show up in this perfect um, epitome of a condition. We're a, a mess of compensation and conditions and life experience all mitten to one, and the critical thinking is how we can start to suss that out and, figure, and, and, and separate the mess into something that's understandable. And that's where I really should have finished the thought before, and that is that you will have X signs and symptoms for one area that's a problem. Then they compensate and they create a problem somewhere else, and then there's a different set of signs and symptoms. And then they compensate around that, and they have a different set for another structure that they overuse and injure. And when someone is confronted with that client, all of those signs and symptoms do not fit any one condition because they don't have one condition. 
At the point they get to you, they probably have three. And now you have to really tease out this complex spider web and see how the different signs and symptoms fit into the many problems that they might have. From my point of view, as someone who, in an honest self-assessment, does not have the level of critical thinking that you that you display, something that you're describing like this, it does can sound overwhelming when you're looking at the, all the different variations and possibilities. And my intuition is that when you un, when you when you practice and you develop your critical thinking skill set, the thing that seems overwhelming starts to get a little bit more simple or it starts to feel accessible because you can you can see how it starts to tease apart. Yes. You know, when I teach workshops, what I am always telling people is we have to go back to fundamentals. And the fundamentals are things that, that pretty much everybody learned back in school. I really don't believe that anything I teach is really difficult if you take it one step at a time. You use the word simple simplicity. Um, a friend of mine who once said, a PhD anatomist once said, he liked this saying, I would not give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think there's like a three-step curve when we first approach learning any subject. At first, we are naive, and we, we step back and say, oh, uh, manual therapy, yeah, you're rubbing your hands on people's bodies. That doesn't seem very hard. Then you have to learn muscle attachments and nerve locations and uh, bones and joints and how joints move and how fascia functions to envelop and transmit tensions and pathologic conditions and cross fiber and effleurage and tap and all these things. And suddenly you get so lost in the minutiae, you say, wow. This is really complex and hard. But if you try to always keep the big picture in mind and you take a step back, at some point you are able to reach simplicity on the other side of complexity. And you can step back and say, oh, I'm not confused by a thousand different trees of different species. It's a forest, right? The old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. Um, Bruce Lee had a quote once that I loved, and I will paraphrase here. He said, before I got into martial arts, I thought that a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. Then I got into martial arts and I realized that a punch is much more than just a punch and a kick is much more than just a kick. Then I became a master of martial arts and I realized that a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick. So to me, what I am always trying to get the participants in my workshops, maybe the readers of my articles and textbooks, the people who subscribe to my digital clinical orthopedic manual therapy video streaming service, anyone that is learning from me in some way, is to say, you really have all the skill sets you need already. What you need to do is take a step back. And if you do know your anatomy, then you can figure out your physiology. So if you know your structure, you can figure out your function. If you know function, physiology, you can figure out pathophysiology. If you know pathophysiology, the condition, the problem, you can figure out assessment. And if you know assessment, you can figure out treatment. 
It all comes back to we, we toddle, we crawl, we walk, we run. A lot of people go right through the beginning stages of school where they learn to toddle and crawl and walk, and they're like, I want to run, I want to run. And they come into my workshop and they're looking for answers for how do you treat this and how do you do that? And what's the technique for this? And I'm like, wait a minute, let's take a step back and let's take a look at the fundamentals. And at first, I think sometimes people are a little bit disappointed in the beginning of my workshop. They think, oh, this guy's being too simple. I already know all that fundamental stuff. But what they might not have learned to do or not, might not have practiced was to build the foundation from the fundamentals to get to that pinnacle of treatment. So I'll pick first the muscle and just give an example. So if I take a muscle like the coracobrachialis, well, just by its name, I know it must go from the coracoid process of the scapula, and brachium is Latin for arm, which means upper arm, which means humerus. So it goes from coracoid process, it goes from scapula to humerus. Well, that means it crosses the shoulder joint, the glenohumeral joint. That means it moves the shoulder joint. Well, my next question is, how would it move it? Well, if I know where the coracoid process is, I know that it's on the anterior side, of the scapula. So now I know I cross the shoulder joint anteriorly. Well, if I have any vertical direction anteriorly, that means I must flex the arm at the shoulder joint. Well, now the location of my muscle, its structure, gave me its function. It's a flexor. The coracoid process is more medial. The brachium, the arm, the humerus is more lateral. Well, now I know that the coracoid, the coracobrachialis will pull the humerus toward the more medial Scapula, coracoid process. Now I know it's an adductor. Now I know the coracobrachialis dysflexion and adduction of the arm at the glenohumeral joint. And I never had to look at a book to see that. I could figure it out. Because if you know anatomy, you can figure out physiology. You should never memorize a muscle's joint action or joint actions. Hmm. Next, someone says to me, okay, well, that's, that's physiology, that's function. It's an adductor and flexor. But what about pathophysiology? Well, what's the pathophysiology most often of a muscle? If it's going to be tight, it will restrict lengthening out. Well, if it lengthens out, that's the opposite of its joint actions because joint actions are concentric joint functions, shortening. So if the coracobrachialis is tight, it would limit extension, and abduction. So if I have a client who says, well, I can't bring my arm back and out, and I feel a restriction when I do that, and especially if they point somewhere in front by coracobrachialis, well, there's pathophysiology. Well, how would I assess it? Well, I know where the coracobrachialis is. I place my fingers between its attachments, and I ask the client to try to adduct the arm at the glenohumeral joint, and I feel for the coracobrachialis to engage. When I do, I know I'm on the coracobrachialis. Aha, the short head of the biceps brachii is right next to it. Maybe I'm on the short head of biceps brachii. It's an adductor and flexor of the glenohumeral joint. Well, then I critically think and I say, well, the short head of biceps brachii flexes the elbow joint, the forearm at the elbow joint, coracobrachialis doesn't. So I ask the client to flex the forearm at the elbow joint against resistance. And if what I'm on engages, it's biceps brachii. If what I'm on doesn't engage, it's coracobrachialis. 
Now I feel when it's relaxed, the baseline tone, it's tissue texture. Is it hard? Is it soft? Are there taut and tender fibers? Are there round, barbely muscle knots, trigger points, myofascial trigger points? Do they refer? I do length assessment. I ask the person to try to go back into extension and adduction. And I feel whether it gets taut and it limits the motion. Well, there's my palpation and length assessment. And there's my assessment. What's my treatment? I massage it. I stretch it. Maybe I moist heat, massage, and stretch. But all of that follows because I simply know that there's a muscle named the coracobrachialis that goes from the coracoid process to the humerus. Now, I will grant that because I don't know where on the humerus it goes, I don't know whether it's a medial or a lateral rotator, and that could color this circumstance. So I need to know that it goes to the midline, the medial shaft of the humerus. So that's a little extra, but that's still its structure. Hmm. It's fascinating watching you go through that procedure. And the word that comes to me when I, when I listen to you do this is deduction. It is all deduction. And yes. I guess that's what we're talking about when we talk about critical thinking, is learning how to deduce from the, the very fundamental basic knowledge that you acquire, usually through the anatomy, as you were saying. Well, you know, and the funny thing is, I don't like anatomy particularly. Anatomy is a naming game. It's literally, I mean, literally, ana means up and tome means cut. Anatomy means cut up. That's all it means. And physiology means study of the body. Phys means body. Ology is Greek, understanding, study of. So anatomy and physiology means cut up and study of the body. And we've taken anatomy to be the structure and physiology to be the function. And anatomy is a naming game. That's really all it is. Picture the first people back in the age of science or even before that in the classical era when they would first do dissections and they literally would cut the body out body up and take some things out and say well we got two of these what do you want to call them let's call it this we got this what do you want to call that and i spend my entire i've been teaching for 31 years and i'm always trying to think how to teach something from an understanding point of view so you don't have to memorize. But I will say when it comes to anatomy, unless the name gives you something, like coracobrachialis tells me something, but unless the name gives you something, you simply must memorize anatomy. That's the dues that we all must pay to be able to do everything else. And if we truly learn our anatomy, truly do, and I always say, take your anatomy textbooks, whether they're mine or someone else's, put one in the kitchen, put one in your bathroom, put one in your living room, put one in your car. Whenever you have a moment, look at pictures hmm. and just be able to close your eyes and see that this muscle goes from here to there, that that ligament goes from this point to that point, that this joint is composed of that bone and that bone. If you can close your eyes and see anatomy, you're golden. But then you do not have to memorize anything else ever again. All of your function, physiology, all of your path to physiology, all of your assessment, all of your treatment is free hmm. once you critically think with the fodder, the initial content of anatomy and the language to use to describe it. 
That's that's really nice to hear. I, I, I have to say one of the best decisions I made in my own career, I feel, is the the desk outside of the, the massage room. I have an anatomy book open. And either before a client shows up or after after the session and I'm waiting for them to come back out, I'm just browsing. I'm looking over either the muscles that I worked on or some muscle that I was trying to remember the name of the other day and I couldn't come up with it. And just 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 touching base on a consistent basis. It doesn't even have to be a study session. Just looking at it, as you said, just browsing can do a, a great deal once you've already kind of taken in the information. It will start to settle into your brain and it will start to become uh, back up, like a um, secondhand What's the expression um, when someone second nature? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a history professor many years ago who started a class by saying that students would say that history is second nature to me. My wife would tell you it's first nature is when we spend all of our time and our passion, our pursuit of manual therapy. Um, sometimes it becomes our first nature. But um, I, I'll make a point now is that. If we only learn anatomy and we're only an academician, we only study academics and we, we look at only science, that's not enough, right? We have to know how to apply it to the client that's on the table at that moment with the problem or problems they have. And I always say that there are two things that make a great therapist. One is a good mind. A good mind meaning you know your anatomy and you can critically think. The other is good hands. And I really think that there's, for the most part, and I'm oversimplifying, I know that, and I apologize to people who like to parse this out into much more detail, but in my view, there's only one true requisite for a great manual therapist, and that's to be able to feel a tissue tension barrier, a mechanical barrier, that when you press into the tissue, the tissue starts to press back. And that, to me, is true whether you're doing massage, whether you, which is soft tissue manipulation, or you're doing stretching, or you're doing joint mobilization. Now, I know that that term scares a lot of massage therapists in the United States, but from a conversation once with AMTA's lawyer, he told me that 40 of the 50 states in the United States legally and ethically allow joint mobilization to be done by massage therapists. I've never gotten the exact list of those 40 or the 10 that aren't, but that means that the vast majority of massage therapists in this country, the United States, can do joint mobilization. And joint mobilization really is stretching. It's pin and stretch. You have a bone. You have the intrinsic fascial tissue between that bone and the adjacent bone. So you have bone A and bone B. I pin, I stabilize bone A. I move bone B relative to bone A, and I stretch the tissue between bones A and B, the intrinsic fascial tissue, the joint capsule, the ligaments. Joint mobilization is really just a specific form of pin and stretch. Hmm. And I'll even make this statement here, and I know people will say, oh, well, he's a chiropractor. He's going to want to say this. But first, I'll, I'll preface with this. If you take all of the therapies that I have in the scope of my license, and I can do ultrasound and electric muscle stim and heat and cold and chiropractic fast thrust manipulation, mobilization adjustment, and massage, 
and stretching and grade four joint mobilization. If you told me that I could only have one therapy, I would take soft tissue manipulation massage. That to me is the one most powerful manual therapy that there is. That doesn't mean that that will cure every person of every problem. But if I were forced to have just one, I would take that. So hopefully that gives me the credentials as a, as a chiropractor speaking in the world of massage. And I taught for 24 years at a massage school to say I'm a, I'm a passionate believer in massage. Now, thank goodness we don't have to choose just one therapy. We're allowed to have more than one. And if I could take just a second one, it would be joint mobilization. Whether it's great, well, I might take stretching second. Then I would take joint mobilization, whether it's grade four or grade five. And for, for therapists who might want to say, no, I don't want to do that, I would make a statement. Fascia, understandably so, is so important and so popular nowadays through the work of Tom Myers and Gil Headley and the Stecco family and Robert Schleip and all these under, other wonderful people. We know that fascia is much more than just a wrapping material for the body. And we believe very strongly in myofascial continuities, anatomy trains. And we believe it's important to work the myofascial tissue, the muscle fascia. And we might do skin rolling and cupping. And we believe very strongly in subcutaneous fascia. And we might do the uh, Barrell's work and the internal visceral fascial work. There's only one other subsection, so to speak, of fascia that's left. And that's the intrinsic fascia of a joint, the joint capsule and the ligaments of the joint. If every other type of fascia is important and should be worked, and we believe that philosophically, ideologically, then why would we ignore the intrinsic fascia of a joint. Now, you can argue that you'd send your patient, your client, to an osteopath or a chiropractor or a physical therapist afterwards to be manipulated. But if you can do grade four yourself and help to loosen that, to me, it's like chicken and egg. Intrinsic tissue, extrinsic outside of the joint. So I don't know how I got on this soapbox speech. <laughs> but I'm actually curious. You, you brought up the gradations of, of joint mobilization, and I'm sure there are some of my listeners out there who are not familiar with that gradation. Can you give me a quick run-by of sure. what one through five is? There are different definitions in different textbooks. I believe Maitland really has I, – I use a version that's like Maitland's um, grading scale that's probably the most well-known. If I were to take – my shoulder joint, and I were to move two degrees, one degree in any way, that's grade one joint mobilization. Any movement of a joint is grade one. Grade two is the end of active range of motion that I can do with the muscles of the joint itself. Grade three is the end of passive range of motion, which is usually a few degrees more than active, where Either I can take my right hand and bring my left arm a little more into abduction, or a therapist can move the client's neck a little more into right rotation and they can do by themselves. And we use grade three joint mobilization and we call it stretching all the time. So really, we're all doing joint mobilization, right? We're mobilizing the joint. Grades four and five 
are a very small degree of a range of motion beyond the end of passive range of motion that is called joint play. And the major concern of grades four and five is a non-axial glide that couples with an axial roll at the end of the passive range of motion. And grade four is slow oscillations. You go to tissue tension barrier at the end of passive range, and then you challenge one of the bones to move relative to the other one that's pinned, stabilized, a a fraction of a millimeter or two for a fraction of a second slowly, and you do oscillations. Whether you do sets of three to five or 10-second sets or whatever, you know, it's, it's saying how many sets or oscillations you do is like saying how many massage strokes do you do. It depends on how the client responds. Grade five is the same thing as grade four with a fast thrust. Mm. So, um, you know, to me, joint mobilization is one of the three major tools or four major tools of orthopedic clinical work. There's hydrotherapy, hot and cold, hot or cold. And I'm a big believer when people have tight muscles that heat loosens musculature, depresses, down-regulates the central nervous system, relaxes musculature. Then soft tissue manipulation massage further relaxes it, improves blood supply, etc. And then we take advantage of that work with stretching and or joint mobilization. And I do not believe in cookbook recipes. I usually preface my workshop by saying, I'm not going to give you a muscolino technique. Okay. I do not, I do not necessarily, there are enough proprietary techniques out there. And now I want to be careful to not insult anyone. (laughs) I am, I am either the most critical person about proprietary techniques or the biggest proponent of them based on how you look at it. When, when a new technique comes out and someone says, Hey Joe, what do you think of this technique? If I know something about it, I try to go to the mechanical basis of what is the technique about. Oh, the technique is positing that we will, um, you know, lengthen a muscle and ask them to contract and then they relax and then we stretch it more. And, oh, it's based on the Golgi tendon organ reflex. And therefore, it's like CR, PIR, PNF. And there's controversy there, but I'll leave that aside. And I try to reason through. But when a technique is out and I haven't heard about it and they say, what do you think of it? I say, well, you know. Let's wait five years, because if it's as wonderful as its proponents say, we will all be doing that technique and no one will do anything else. Five years later, sure enough, not everybody is doing that technique. Now, maybe it went by the wayside because it wasn't very good, or maybe it was good and the person didn't know how to market it. But more likely, it becomes one more technique amongst all the others. And then my attitude is, well, It doesn't cure everybody of everything. So it can't be the answer, but it's still around. So there must be something good about it. So why not go to as many technique workshops as you can? Take everything they say with a slight grain of salt, but learn their tools. Put their tools in your tool belt, in your toolbox. Then when your next client comes in with a certain problem, you have all these tools to choose from. Ah, well, which one do we use? Which ones do we use? Well, now it comes down to our mechanism of critical thinking to say, well, 
the problem this person has is their right sacroiliac joint is restricted in motion and their piriformis muscle is spasmed. Oh, well, I learned a really great stretch for the piriformis in this last workshop. Let me use that, right? right? That one didn't work for this particular person. Oh, I learned another one in another workshop. Let me try that. Oh, for this person, that stretch worked. I had a brand new patient today. She had, amongst other things, uh, type piriformis. And I gave her three different piriformis self-care stretches to try at home. But we did each of them together first. She did the first one, this horizontal adduction stretch. She said, mm, no, I don't really feel it that much. I really feel it over here. I changed the angle. She says, you know, it's a bit better. Then I gave her this figure four one where the person puts their ankle over the distal anterior thigh of the opposite upper lower extremity, and they go up into the air and they pull their thigh up. And it's based on the piriformis being a medial rotator when it's flexed to 60 degrees or more. So you stretch it with lateral rotation. And she said, that one really gets to it. I said, well, as long as your knee is healthy, that's okay, because that one torques the knee. And then I gave her another one that was halfway between the other two. And she said, oh, I really like that one. I gave her three different ones. And I learned each of those three in a different workshop. No one was necessarily the right answer for everyone. We keep coming back to critical thinking because you learn oh, all can, these tools. Can we come back to anything else? <laughs> you learn Is all there these anything things? else to come back to, Haley? <laughs> Not in this conversation. Not in this conversation. Um, but I'm curious. The, the, the definition of critical thinking is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. And it seems to me that the hardest part of executing that definition, of executing critical thinking, is the word objective. And one, I'm curious if you agree with me on that. And two, uh, how do you teach objectivity? How do you teach the difference between what is objective and subjective when there's so much sensation that you're, you're working with? Yeah, that's a very big question. And I think there's probably a few possible answers there. I think the first thing, you know, we have to be honest about is that um, palpation is subjective. And I think palpation is the one most, I teach assessment workshops all the time. I think palpation is the gold standard for assessment skills, more important than Finkelstein's test and Adson's test and Thomas test and all these fancy named orthopedic assessment tests that, that intimidate people. I think they're all good. I use them all. I teach them all. But I really love palpation assessment. But palpation is, by definition, subjective. Now, could we are there actual little mechanism machines that are used in research studies where they push into the client's tissue and they measure the force that's going into the tissue and they can say it's like, you know, 7.2 grams or whatever it is? I mean, I'm as, I'm as anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive, and academic and geeky as the next person, but I remember the first time I read a palpation textbook um, I think by Leon Chetow, and I loved it. And he said something about five grams of pressure. And I was like, I have no idea yeah, what I've... five grams of pressure is. <laughs> and then someone said, oh, Joe, it's the weight of a, a dime or a nickel or something. I said, oh, okay, that I can, that I can understand. Wow, that's light. <laughs> and 
So I guess the first thing I'm going to say is short of you owning these fancy machines, which I really am not a big fan of, um, I think we first have to be honest that when we are going into palpate, we have to go in with clear intent. And clear intent, um, clear intent means we don't have the answer before we've gathered the information. And I do believe that very often people follow, unfortunately, a lot of therapists follow this old saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there are some people who have only a hammer. And that hammer is, everybody has myofascial trigger points. That hammer is, everybody needs lymphatic drainage. I mean, there's so many things. And I try really hard when I approach a new client. Um, first, I will say, I spend two hours in my first session. And that two hours is spent usually an hour and 15 minutes, if not an hour and a half, is history and exam. I don't have a written history they fill out. I did years ago. I really found that I preferred to ask my history because the answer to one question invariably led to a different next question than what the, the piece of paper had. And if 10 new people come to me, I usually feel that at the end of the history, and I take a good half hour to 40 minute history, I usually am fairly certain of what's wrong in seven out of those 10. I still do the exam. And at the end of the exam, I usually know another two of the 10. Now that means that one out of 10, I don't know exactly what's wrong at the end of history and exam. And that breaks a rule. A rule is you do history exam and you do reporter findings. You tell them what's wrong with them. And one out of 10, I'm still not sure. I mean, I found the problem is I found six things wrong with them, but I don't know which one was the real cause, the real center of the problem. So I have to then do a few treatments to see how they respond to then know that. But all of this process means I have to come in not with a mindset already made up that I'm going to fit them into my favorite conditioned pigeonhole. And that sometimes is tough because we want things to be certain things. One of the articles I wrote for Massage and Body Work magazine that came out last year was, or earlier this year, is called The Unusual Suspects, wherein I say, you know, someone comes in, they have pain in their gluteal area, the buttock area, the pelvis. You ask nine out of 10 massage therapists, they have a tight piriformis. Well, I remember a patient that came to me once, and she came in, she pointed, she had said she had pain in her buttock area. It started the day before. That was a miracle. She came in the very next day. Very disciplined person. And I wanted it to be piriformis. And I palpated that piriformis seven different ways. And I could not justify the piriformis being tight. And then I was forced to leave my mindset of having the hammer for that nail. And I had to palpate all around the area. And in the end, it was quadratus femoris. Now, maybe I had 20 people before with a tight quadratus femoris, but I never found it because I never went looking for it. And that was an error in my evaluation process that, thank goodness, I was forced to reevaluate and correct in that. So what happens? After that, quadratus femoris becomes one of my new favorite 
muscles that must be in a lot of people. And I remember the next patient that came in a number of years later, walking down a staircase, misjudged, hit the ground hard because she thought there was another step. There wasn't. And sent the shockwave up through her spine, felt the pain in her buttock, gluteal, SIJ, sacroiliac joint area, and had pain with every step there on out. So I say, hey, it's probably piriformis. Nope, it's not. It must be quadratus femoris. I go in all of the deep lateral rotators, piriformis, superior gemellus, obturator internus, inferior gemellus, obturator externus, quadratus femoris. They're totally perfectly fine. It was coccygeous. Now, I couldn't even find a posterior view of the coccygeous muscle anywhere in a textbook. I ended up having an artist draw it for the next edition of one of my books and for an article I wrote. And under deep to it, inferior to it, I should say, was levator ani. Now, those are pelvic floor muscles, but they're totally accessible from the outside. And as long as you have proper verbal consent with how you work, then you can work these. And that's what her problem was. But I had to be objective. I had to come in not prejudging, prejudicing, and making it be what I wanted it to be. Hmm. And I think that is part of the essence of being objective. All right, that does it for the first episode with Joe. I'll be back with the conclusion of our conversation in a week to 10 days. Until then, like us on Facebook or check out the website for additional information. Until next time, be good and be well.